Sadguru Varasanmane Kesad Premsaya Hadik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart on this uh, very auspicious Shiva Ratri night. Welcome to our Shiva Ratri celebration, the night of Shiva. Remember, every mantra that you repeat on Shivaratri is worth 10,000 mantras. So if you, if you repeat uh, 1,000 every day for the whole year, that's 365,000. So you only have to repeat 365 to equal that. And if you do 5,000 tonight, you've got years and years. So. You spiritual materialists will know what I mean. You Advaitins won't understand that. <clears throat> anyway, this is the, the night uh, that I met Baba 52 years ago on Shivaratri in New Delhi. Uh, I had been uh, doing Hatha Yoga with Haridas Baba in uh, Haridwar, Kankal Haridwar, and then he went to America where he continued uh, teaching for the rest of his life. Uh, and then I heard that Ramdas was in Bodh Gaya meditating, and uh, we joined him there. And he said, I'm meeting a great siddha named Muktananda at, uh, in Delhi on Shivaratri. Do you want to come? I said, yes. <clears throat> and so we went on a bus with him uh, and uh, met Baba on this night, on this day, in Shivaratri, they were chanting 24-hour Om Namah Shivaya chant and so on. I fell in love with Baba and with Shiva. Uh, Shiva is very cool. As uh, <clears throat> Swami Turinanda said, he's the guru of gurus. Uh, for me, Baba is Shiva incarnate. He's the yogi of yogis, the great yogi. And he's also the hippie of hippies. He was uh, famously banned from coming to uh, a yagna ritual because uh, the, the father of his bride didn't approve of his uh, odd attire. And that, all kinds of horrible things happened because of that. But just look at, look at the way he dresses. <clears throat> um, aside from his vast power and love, what I like about Shiva, really what I really like about him, is his universal acceptance. Uh, you, if you can't find a spiritual home anywhere else in this world, you're too impure and too fucked up, <laughs> too weird, too politically incorrect, or too politically correct anything, uh, Shiva will accept you. <clears throat> whatever you are, however you are, whatever you believe, Shiva will accept you. Uh, in Shiva's company, you can feel okay about being who you are. And that's, uh, that's my idea of a great deity. <clears throat> because uh, in my experience, uh, the deities I had met before that weren't quite like that. Uh, he also stands... Uh, for universal consciousness, universal awareness. While I was with Baba, he introduced me to the, the great philosophy of Kashmir Shaivism, which is a form of Advaita, or non-dual non understanding, which says, uh, Advaita says that 
the whole universe is made of one stuff. There's one stuff that underlies the universe, and that stuff is alive and aware. It's consciousness itself. <clears throat> uh, so if, in this point of view, Kashmir Shaivism is in the same tradition as Advaita Vedanta. What? Oops. What did you say? <laughs> what did you say? Para Advaitin. Para Advaitin. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Where did that come from, Shiva? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's Para Advaita. Uh, but actually, uh, in my estimation, Kashmir uh, Shaitan improves on Vedanta because it doesn't uh, reject the world the way classical Vedanta does, which says this world is an illusion. Uh, instead, it says that this world is consciousness, too, that it's Shiva. The world is part of Shiva. And uh, if you're intelligent and vigilant uh, and on purpose, you can find Shiva in this world. You don't have to run to a Himalayan cave to find, uh, find God. You can find it right in this world. Though it doesn't hurt to spend a little time in a Himalayan cave either. <clears throat> so in honor of Shivaratri, I'm going to do my program, which I call Shiva Hermeneutics. Uh, and this is a very big name. We're going to look at just one sutra from Kajna Shaivism, one scriptural sentence. Uh, and see what we can find there. <clears throat> okay. So let me explain hermeneutics first. Uh, it's been called the science or the art of interpretation, especially interpretation of texts. It often involves a methodology of interpretation. And I have a particular methodology I apply to these texts, which we'll hear. The idea of hermeneutics goes back as far as 1630 in the work of a German theologian named Johann Danauer, and beyond that all the way back to Plato. And it's mostly known in the West from the hermeneutical work of the Christian theologians who used to interpret biblical texts according to fourfold interpretation, literal, moral, allegorical, and so on. Um, the word hermeneutics is related to the Greek god Hermes, uh, who is Mercury in um, Roman mythology. Hermes was the messenger god. He would move swiftly between worlds, bringing, uh, it was before the internet, so they, <laughs> but he moved really fast. Like, who's that superhero that moves that frightening? Flash. What? Flash. Flash, yeah, he's the Flash. He was Flash. Um, <clears throat> So uh, he brought the teachings of the gods to humanity. Uh, and in order to do that, he had to translate the language of the gods into a form that human beings could understand. So thus, he's the first hermeneutic <laughs> guy. Uh, he, and he's, credi he's credited with the discovery of language and of writing, because these were methods of bringing that ineffable divine teaching to humanity. When I was studying literature in graduate school, 
I, uh, studying certain Christian literature of the 17th century, I came across uh, a theological idea called the doctrine of accommodation. And the main idea of that is that God has to accommodate his wisdom to the capacity of humanity, of human beings. Because if God just did godly things, we wouldn't understand it, or we'd pass out. So he has to accommodate it. Uh, and so God was really the first hermeneutic fellow. He had to explain it. <clears throat> and Gurdjieff calls it uh, external considering, it's speaking to the listening. In the form, they say, speak to the listening of, of your audience. Um, now, hermeneutics, the hermeneutics of Kashmir Shaivism, we have two different cultures, possibly two, di two different languages, two different philosophical and religious traditions, and we try to make them communicate. Uh, we're transporting a text from one place and culture uh, to another, and hopefully we're also able to preserve its meaning along with our translation of the language. I saw this as a problem way back, you know, because in my life I, I had this tremendous interaction with the Hindu tradition. And I wasn't after Hinduism. I was after an enlightened being. I didn't care what he was. He could have been from Mars. Uh, as long as he had something that he could show me. Uh, but then there was a hermeneutical difficulty of trying to understand what was cultural and what was the essence of it. And also reading those texts, how to, because I saw there was something of immense value in these texts and how to understand them and even communicate them to others. <clears throat> and um, so in the, in the broadest sense, this is true of all human communication. Every husband and wife have to deal with the problems of interpretation, as you husbands and wives know. So there's a hermeneutics that goes on in the home. Um, the scholar Bettina Mabama says, there is a need on the one side to preserve the tradition and on the other to find suitable means to keep it alive by reinterpreting it. Because if you just spout traditional things, it becomes, can become without shakti, can become platitudes and just automatic statements that don't have any life. So you have to find a way to to have life, but you can't be so radical that you forget the tradition. So it's a great balance to keep it alive, but true to what the original meaning is. So this is hermeneutics. <clears throat> so these texts were written, the Shaivite texts were written by highly developed yogis, realized beings, uh, <clears throat> but still they were from a particular time and place. Shiva Sutras is from the ninth century Kashmir. Um, and we read them at our own level, from our own culture, in our own developmental time, our place and time and, and, uh, and so on, with our preconceptions. And the main issue in Shiva hermeneutics is that we feel this teaching has something to say to us. That makes it different from uh, academic scholarship. Uh, which is just interested in the history of it and what it was saying at the time, um, because we profoundly believe there's something that's alive for us now that can illumine our life uh, as it is. Uh, and we value that in, uh, 
<clears throat> we believe that the essence of that can help everyone in every time and every place if we can translate it properly. We're bridging a thousand year gap and also the gap between East and West. Uh, as, uh, who is it, uh, Kipling said, never the twain shall meet. We have to make them meet. The gap between, even bigger gap, between mundane ego-based consciousness and divine consciousness. There's a big hermeneutic right there. That's a hermeneutical feat. <laughs> so Shaiva hermeneutics is different from the academic hermeneutics, as I said, because uh, instead of simply studying these things, we're applying them and taking them to ourselves. We feel we're having darshan of a higher consciousness, and uh, we expect to, be, to grow and to be transformed by that darshan. <clears throat> so we're looking for, you could say, Shiva's meaning in these texts, the original meaning, or saying it even more simply, we study these texts in order to release the shakti of these texts. <clears throat> We know that we've reached it when it becomes alive for us in an energetic way. Uh, we call it the Shakti, the spiritual energy, the Holy Spirit, a non-ordinary experience. And when that helps us, when we use these texts to connect to that, uh, then we're transformed. <clears throat> so in, in the, the hermeneutics I'm applying here, I look through three different lenses familiar to most of you, uh, the solid, the vital, and the peculiar lenses, or the, the intellectual, the emotional, and the action-centered uh, lenses. <clears throat> and first, through philosophical or intellectual lens, here we analyze the meaning of the text as best we can, and then we find the emotion, or the inspirational meaning of the text. Here we discover what we call the G statements or the Mahavakyas, the great statements that take us emotionally through attitude, through bhav to the divine. And finally, through a yogic or experiential lens, we use practical techniques, methodologies, dharanas, meditations uh, to experience it. So that's my preliminary. How's that? All right. Wow. <laughs> That's okay. I'll tell you when you can clap. <clears throat> All right, so the, the, the text I want to do tonight is Shiva Sutras 116. Now, Shiva Sutras are the, they like to say, the foundational text of Kashmir Shaivism. It was, uh, it's associated with the sage Vasugupta in the ninth century, and the, the, the myth goes that he discovered them under a rock in Kashmir and so on. Uh, we might say he channeled it. Uh, who knows how it happened, but there are these sutras, uh, and they, they're very mysterious, uh, very difficult to grasp, and yet they have a lot of shakti and a lot of illumination to them. And people have studied them for all these years, and you get a lot uh, on, the, on the inner level from it. So this is one of them. This is, can we put that one up? 
Asanasta sukham vide nimajati. Sukham vide nimajati. Established in concentration on the self alone, he easily plunges into the ocean of bliss. You like that? You don't even have to analyze it just to like that. <clears throat> so, uh, first, the first part of interpretation is the translation. Asanasta, comfortably seated or established. You know the, uh, the word asana is a posture. The, the, the mother of all postures is the meditative posture, the, the lotus posture or the other postures they use for meditation. So comfortably seated. Uh, sukham is uh, easily, sukaduka, easy and pleasant. <clears throat> pleasurably and easily. And Rade is the lake or the ocean of consciousness. It's a metaphor. The ocean of consciousness. Uh, it also appears in another sutra, uh, Maharada Anusandhanat Manchavirya Anubhav, by connecting with the great ocean, the great lake of consciousness. Um, one, the power of mantra is experience, which we will look at during the workshop coming up. Uh, but uh, it, it, in this metaphor, we see consciousness as an ocean, which contains all things. It's a pretty good metaphor. Just as the ocean contains all manner of creatures and objects um, and plastics of all kinds, uh, so consciousness contains everything. Uh, so. And nimajati to plunge in, plunges in. Uh, <clears throat> so let's look at the philosophically. Um, one of the, I'll look at some of the sages. An 11th century sage named Bhaskar, he said, I'm having trouble with these, let me try these. That doesn't help much. <clears throat> I had, um, I've got a, a, a condition called macular degeneration. Have you heard of that? Anyway, I get shots in my eyes every few weeks. Very pleasant experience. <laughs> and I had one yesterday. So it's pretty good. They're very happy with me, so don't worry. <clears throat> That's why I play the blues harp, so I can become a blind blues player one day. <laughs> blind Lemon Jefferson. Yeah, no, I can read it. Uh, anyway, Bosco says, uh, you know, I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip to Shemaraj, because he's my favorite. <clears throat> Was I him in a past life? Yeah, okay. Shemaraja, great disciple of Abhinavagupta, who's pictured there, making notes at Abhinavagupta's feet. He says, when a yogi is in touch with the highest shakti, that is called his asana, or seat. So you're not sitting on the seat in the posture. Your posture is sitting in the shakti. You're sitting in God consciousness. 
Shamaraj says, sitting in the seat means letting go of all practices and being mindful of that power within. You don't have to do anything. No practices, no rituals, no nothing, except be in touch with that power. Of course, you do have to do a lot of practice and rituals to get there. <clears throat> but if you connect with the grace of the guru, then you can automatically slip into that power. He says, such a one easily identifies with the ocean of consciousness, which is the characteristic in our terms of the upward shift and is a source of all manifestation. When you touch that, that inner vibrancy, I'm talking about a real experience, and many of us in, in the room have had it and had it repeatedly, of a vibrancy. You know, when we feel our life is dull, boring, empty, dry, or even horrific, it means we're not in touch with that enormous principle. And we're filled with worry and self-concern, self-pity and fear, and because that we're separated from it. But if we can turn within, become peaceful, and sit in that proper asana, in that seat, we can connect to that, that great power. And then suddenly our experience is transformed. Something changes within. The world remains as it is. You look at the world and you drink a bottle of scotch, the world looks different. <laughs> now the world didn't change, you changed. And the same thing is true from yogic point of view. The world doesn't change, but your inner vision changes. And you don't get a hangover either. <clears throat> he says, uh, Shemaraja often quotes the Netra Tantra, which says in summary that one should give up all thinking, objects of meditation, all supports, and abide identified with the highest. And we'll get to actually practicing these, these thoughts. This is the philosophy part of the hermeneutic. Um, Jaidev Singh says, who's a modern scholar, he says, uh, in the Shiva Sutras 15, says Bija Vadanam, which means focus on the seed of the universe. It's saying the same thing. Focus on the essence. Focus on the mystical center of reality. Focus on the self. Focus on consciousness. And which, or focus on the highest. So he says, the sutra says, one who's thus focused easily enters into consciousness. Our minds are usually not focused on that, focused on the periphery, on all worry and self-concern and this and that and other things. Uh, but saying focus, make your asana, sit in this highest awareness. Uh, Lakshmanju, Swami Lakshmanju, a modern Shaivite, says, you're seated in that posture when you hold and possess the supreme energy of awareness. Because what is it that holds this energy? It's your own awareness. When you connect with the essence of your own awareness, then this energy uh, comes forward. He says he remains seated in the posture of the self effortlessly. The yogi dives into the ocean of consciousness and all his tendencies disappear. All your bad trips, all your fears and your desires and your uh, hang-ups all disappear in this ocean of consciousness. And this state is subjective, not objective. It's focused on the self, not worrying about 
external, but focused on the great power. <clears throat> so this is what it, the, uh, the essence of the philosophy, to sit in this asana. The asana being the asana of awareness, consciousness. So my next lens is the, um, the G statement. But first, a few images of this. We have, uh, <clears throat> let's look at some people sitting effortlessly in this asana. Here's one. The Buddha. You know that how many statues of the Buddha have you seen? Of all kinds, sitting serene in his asana. And he's sitting there at total peace, in complete harmony with the universe. He's sitting there. Asanasta sukham marde namajati. That's the embodiment of that. He won't admit it, but he's feeling the shakti too. <laughs> says, Buddha, come on, admit it. You're experiencing the self and the shakti. No, no, no. That'll confuse people if I admit that. I'm, I'm feeling the void. <clears throat> As uh, Avadu told me, they went to the, the temple of the void in Japan and nothing was there. <laughs> <laughs> so there, another, let's see another one sitting in that asana. <laughs> sitting in his asana, easily slipping into universal consciousness. How about another practitioner? Yeah, I could go on. I could show a picture of Ramana. Uh, Ramakrishna and Sridhi Baba and all these guys. Anyway, let's do it. The, for us, that's great that they did it, but for us, they model it. They model it. Because we have to become that Shiva who sits effortlessly in our asana. So let's do some, I'll give you some G statements and um, you can just contemplate them. Just sit sit there like the Buddha. Here's one. I sit firmly in consciousness. I sit at ease in consciousness. I don't have to do anything except to I can't read it. Ah, I got it. But I, have, I don't have to do anything except to abide in my own true nature. That's the American presence in Biden. He abides the self. I don't have to do anything except to abide in my own true nature. Another one from this sutra. I plunge into consciousness. You like that one? I focus on the upward moving breath. Not the in-breath or the out-breath, but the third breath that goes upwards. The Kundalini Shakti. Another one. 
My seat is the highest Shakti. Another one. I hold my state. Another one. I am mindful of the great power within me. These are all G statements implied by this sutra. Another one. I give up all thoughts and objects and rest in awareness itself. And finally, I hold and possess the supreme energy of awareness. Shaivism teaches that your awareness has ichayana and kriya. It's not just uh, an ineffectual blank slate. It has the capacity to know and understand. It has the capacity to love and to enjoy and has the capacity to achieve and do anything it wants. This is the power of awareness. So those are some G statements. And finally we'll do the third part of the hermeneutic, which is the vital, the practical. The practical lens, this is the doing, and then we can do some of these. <clears throat> these practices are suggested or implied by the sutra. As I contemplated uh, the sutra, these practices came forth, you might get other ones. <clears throat> Note that a well-known uh, posture is called sukhasan. You know, sukhasan is what? Easy what? Easy yeah, easy. It's easy. Called the easy posture. It's what Bhagwan Nityananda was sitting in in that one. It's not the the lotus posture, um, which is very difficult, especially for Western legs. But some of you might be able to do it. But um, it's just easy sitting casually, but with legs crossed. <clears throat> so um, it's a very natural way to sit in meditation. OK, so here are some techniques. Let's try them on. Sit completely at ease and focus on the self and let yourself be absorbed. I only want you to do this for about a half a minute because after that your mind will come in and start thinking about what's on television and this and that. So we'll just do it briefly. Be completely absorbed, sit in the self. Another one. Relax every part of your body and with great naturalness and comfort turn within. Just relax everything. All the points of tension, just relax them and turn within. Nice? You like that? Okay. Another one. Your seat is your basic posture in regard to the universe. That's what your seat means, your stance. 
my position is, my political position is, my theoretical position is, but your asana in this case is your, your stance in relation to the universe. <clears throat> and here with the stance, it's your discipline and your attitude. Make your basic posture absorption in the self. The basic posture is to be absorbed in the self and sit, sit comfortably in that. So in that posture, you're not afraid of anything. You're not striving for anything. You're completely contented, completely yourself. Just taste it. Just taste it. Okay. Another one? We're moving swiftly through these. Focus on consciousness. <clears throat> and in a relaxed way, merge in consciousness. What is consciousness? Your own awareness. So what is it to be conscious? Look at it. Look, turn, consciousness can turn within and examine itself. Your own awareness by which you understand, see, and experience life, turn within, sit in that, and merge in that consciousness. Okay, how's that? <clears throat> Was there an energy in that? No? Raise your hand if there was some energy in that. All right, all right, okay. You just say, I want a witness. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so another one for you breath yogis. The yoga of breath is a great yoga to focus on the breath. Really, the essence of the yoga of breath is simply to be aware of the breath. When you take your awareness and apply it to the breath, magic happens. What did I say? Magic happens through this conjunction of awareness and breath. And when you do that, stuff happens. You just have to try it. <clears throat> so focus on the upward breath. This is not the in-breath or the out-breath but the movement of energy that goes upward towards the sahasra. When you watch the in-breath and the out-breath, you'll also notice that there's a movement of energy upwards. So do this, watch the breath come in and out, and notice a movement of energy upwards. See if, do that for a moment. Just watch the breath come in and out, and then just notice if there's an upwards energy going on at the same time. Okay.
You able to see that? Yeah? It's a hermeneutic problem. You know, one of the interesting hermeneutics is that when you uh, become aware, you start to awaken, maybe you receive Shaktipat, and you realize that there's a higher kind of life, there's something beyond the mundane. You even have experiences of that. And you're so filled with enthusiasm and you want to go tell everybody about this great thing that you've encountered. And you go out with your heart full of love and abundance and you meet a wall. Because you haven't achieved the hermeneutic, the proper hermeneutic of conveying that. And that takes a lifetime of study to be able to convey that. Sometimes you can't say a word. You can only be that. You can only just be that, not say a word about anything, and just be in that space. Sit in your asana. Because not everybody's ready to walk the path, not everybody's ready to hear these things, but it's a hermeneutical issue, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? I bet you do. All right, here's another one. Let's see, I got uh, two more. Ready? <clears throat> You're a great yogi. I mean you. Hey, I'm talking to you. You're a great yogi. Me? Yeah. You're a great yogi. Sit strongly in the self. Go ahead. Be like the Buddha. Sit strongly in the self, just for a half minute. The Buddha did it for how many days and nights? You do it for a half a minute. For Kali Yuga. Very good. Are you a half-minute Buddha? Not bad. <laughs> Be good. <clears throat> and then finally, one of my favorite ones, Shikantaza from Zen tradition. Just sitting. Just sitting. I love this concept. When you sit to meditate, you're just sitting there. Zen is so marvelously understated. Um, so you sit comfortably in your asana and you let whatever arises, arise, and you let whatever subsides, subside. And as you sit there comfortably in your asana, worlds are created and dissolved, and you come in touch with that great shakti, that great power, just sitting. Asana sta sukham rade nemajati. There you go. How are we doing? <clears throat> I have time to read Baba's commentary, then we'll meditate. Yeah? Okay, I'll do it. <clears throat> this is Baba's commentary on this very sutra in Siddha Meditation. Um, it's a collection of. Um, 
of his writings on Shaivism, which I humbly will say I conceived of and edited with his permission. I'm very proud of it. So this is Baba's writing on Asanastal Sukham Nimajati. Baba says, posture, and we'll go, we'll go right from this uh, into meditation, chanting Om Namah Shivaya and meditation with a special uh, treat because we'll chant it with Baba and we'll watch Baba chanting and we'll do that for uh, a while. And uh, after a while you can close your eyes if you can take your eyes off Baba uh, and uh, meditate. But I'll read you his words. Posture really means the posture of true knowledge and understanding, not the lotus posture or the perfect posture. Constant awareness of the identity of the universe and the self, the all-pervading one being, is the steady posture. Remaining firm in this posture, one need not resort to other practices. He remains conscious within himself. I am consciousness, the shakti, which is both imminent and transcendent. Such a yogi rises above limited body consciousness, shedding all his samskaras, his past impressions, and becomes absorbed in the bliss of the self. He easily gets immersed in that ocean of nectar from which the universe flows. I used to take it, I took it for granted that what the great being said that this universe is an ocean of nectar. Baba keeps saying, and I was experiencing it as an ocean of suffering. And I would say, why, where is it? I'm sitting in this ocean of suffering. And he's saying there's an ocean of nectar. And I believed that he was right and that I could search deeper, go deeper, go deeper, go to the core of your suffering and deeper and deeper still. And it, you will find that there's this ocean of nectar. Baba says, one who has assumed this posture has no need to practice concentration, fixing his gaze above, below, or in the middle, or in front or behind, or right or left, on higher or lower centers, inside or outside his body, all various methods. doesn't have to use all this stuff. He doesn't turn his mind to some object of meditation. He doesn't have to meditate on the senses or primal elements. He dissolves all duality in unity with the self. He just sits in the self. Remaining in this state is, is liberation, the transcendence of all phenomena. It is possible only as a result of initiation by a true guru, which awakens the inner shakti and stabilizes the mind and the heart, that vast ocean of bliss, the serene, the, <clears throat> the scene of Parashakti's joyful reveling. Devotion to the guru assures that the seeker will enter there. Coming out from the steady posture of meditation, so after you've sat in that asana, Immersion in the ocean of the heart, the yogi sees the sport of Parashakti in the outer universe too. So Baba is moving towards from Atma Vyapti to Shiva Vyapti, from meditation to the world, seeing God everywhere in the world. His natural meditation goes on 
whether he's seated or standing, conversing, performing sense functions. He beholds the bliss of the heart flowing all around him. Constant meditation comes only through the Guru's grace. Baba always emphasized the Guru's grace because that was his experience. He had practiced all the different techniques, meditations, everything he could find in every philosophy and path that he could find, and he found many. It was only when he came to Bhagwan Nityananda, Bhagwan Nityananda initiated him with Shaktipat Diksha and awakened an explosion within him. That's why he emphasized that so much. <clears throat> so let's meditate, we'll chant on the night of, uh, of Shivaratri with Baba, and you can chant with Baba. And remember, you get 10,000 repetitions for each one, and you can uh, watch Baba chanting many years ago on a night like this. So once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Sakurnat Maharaj, Hara 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 Mahadev. Okay, let's watch Baba.